You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. I am your host, Tony Lopes. And this week's guest was born and raised in Warwickshire. Warwickshire or Warwickshire? Warwickshire. That's Warwickshire. a tough one. That is a tough one for Americans to say. Almost <laughs> as tough as Worcestershire. <laughs> Warwickshire, England, and is now living in LA in California. He's always had a creative inclination that he would explore as a child by drawing the ideas he had in his head, but he could never realize those ideas on paper. And it wasn't until he picked up a camera that he he was able to finally translate those images and stories into something tangible. He's always photographed the things he's most passionate about, which led him into the worlds of high-end automobiles, the luxury lifestyle, and martial arts, because those are the things he's most passionate about, and because he's a martial artist as well. So from California to Corsica and everything in between, his clients have included McLaren, Aston Martin, Lamborghini, Jaguar, Land Rover, Honda Motorcycles, Dell, Callaway, Canon, Sony, Microsoft, and Nokia. His latest projects include work with record producer Michael Blakely, his own everyday adventure apparel brand aptly named Swords, that's S-W-R-D-Z dot com, and the brand new Adam's Words podcast. Here are the self-made strategies of Adam Swords. Adam, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, so I appreciate you uh, asking me to come on. Really, really appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah, really psyched to get to know you and to hear a lot about your background. I've watched a lot of your YouTube videos. I've also watched the videos that you've produced for Producer Michael. That's the channel on YouTube that you largely are the creative director for, so to speak, right? That's it. Yep. Yeah. I am the producer of the Producer Michael channel. <laughs> it's very meta, very meta of you <laughs> right. to, to produce for a producer. <laughs> All right. So let's let's start sort of from the, the beginning of your uh, launch or, or rocket ship style trajectory into the world of, of photography. You started shooting photography while you were in university. And then you started hustling by taking your portfolio literally to ad agencies, kind of uh, beating, beating the sidewalk there in London, which eventually led to a meeting with a creative director in London. So let's start there. Tell us about that, that part of your entrepreneurial journey. So I, I've always had a passion for photography, and I actually started shooting before university. I think my first paid gig was when I was 15 or 16, and I got um, one of my pictures in one of the mountain bike magazines because as a kid... Me and my friends used to ride mountain bikes, and uh, it became quickly apparent that my skills lay behind the camera rather than on a bike. Uh, <laughs> and so I sold my bike after a particularly nasty crash where I found myself laying in the bottom of this jump, holding onto my face after I'd banged up my chin. And I was Ooh. just like, I just want to take pictures. It's way less dangerous. <laughs> uh, so yeah, sold my bike, bought a, a nice lens for my camera, and then still went riding with my friends, but just I took pictures. And so it, it started there. and. And I was taking pictures of my friends riding and then they became sponsored and then their sponsors started to come to me because I was always the guy that was with them. Um, and so that's kind of how it started. I think that's how I realized, okay, I could, I could make money from my photos because originally I'd wanted to be a vet. I'd wanted to be a police dog handler. I'd wanted to be a marine biologist. So I had all of these type of, uh, yeah, I guess they're, they're all really animal related um, jobs in mind. And then I just, yeah, started taking pictures. So you were talking about my my first 
big break, I guess you would call it. And yeah, I, I went through university shooting a lot of the, the magazine stuff and some very low level uh, commercial gigs. Uh, and then I was actually on a shoot down in London where it was for a tiny, tiny bike magazine, the smallest one that I worked for. The day rate was, was nothing. It was like 100 and, 125 pounds a day or something. But at the time it was, it was good. It was putting fuel in my car and I was getting my work out there. So I, I was taking the jobs. So I, I go down to London, take the train down from Warwickshire from where I'm from. And it's, it's about an hour on the train and uh, I get down there and the weather was terrible. And so the shoot got rained off. So there I am in the middle of London, having wasted half a day getting down there and getting to the location only to find out that it had been canceled. So I just out of nowhere, just decided that I would put out a tweet and I'm like, oh, maybe someone will see it. So I just wrote, and I would love to find that tweet. Actually, that, that would be, that'd be really fun to go back. And I put out a tweet that basically said, any art directors in London free to take a meeting, just had a shoot canceled. So I was like, all right, whatever. Tweet sent, got on the underground, lost reception, got all the way back to London, Euston, came up the escalators out of London, Euston tube station. And my phone pinged and it was from an art director called Adam Roberts. In uh, He was working for an agency called Crayon at the time, which was a big agency right in uh, Oxford Circus. Um, yeah, huge, huge agency. I'm like, holy, uh, are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, or? yeah. yeah. Curse okay. to your like, heart's content. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, just, I didn't know how much, because on my YouTube channel, I have to censor like <laughs> certain things. Um, so yeah, I'm like, holy shit, like th- this is incredible. Um, so I, the guy's like, yeah, come on, come on over. We'll, we'd love to meet you. So I get back on the underground, shoot across to Oxford Circus and go and meet this guy. And at this point, I'm dripping wet. I've got a backpack on with a light stand in one side, a tripod in the other my iPad under my arm. I look like a complete novice hack photographer. And I walk into this agency and get ushered upstairs to one of the meeting rooms to meet Adam Roberts, the creative director. As I open the door, it's one of the main boardrooms. And there must have been 20 creatives sat around the table waiting for me. And I was just like, we're doing this. This is, <laughs> this, this is a thing. It's go so time. I, yeah. So I've always, I've never been shy of public speaking or, or you know, being the center of attention, I guess. And so I was like, all right, whatever. So I went in, hey guys, how's it going? Apologies that I look like a drowned rat. Um, I also don't have my print portfolio. So you're going to have to hustle around, uh, huddle around this iPad. And so I threw it down on the table and I was like, have at it. So they all kind of flicked through the pictures. Oh yeah, these are really nice, whatever. And 10 minutes later, they'd all left. And Adam Roberts was like, oh, you know, it's great to see you, mate. Uh, he, he actually followed me on Twitter because I'd done an internship with a, a guy called Chase Jarvis, a photographer in uh, Seattle. Uh, a year or two prior to that. And so he had followed me since then. Um, and so it was just such a coincidence that, that that whole chain of events had led me to that point. And so I left the, the meeting and I felt good. And he was like, yeah, we'll be in touch if we have anything that comes up. And then a week or two weeks later, I get an email. Hey, buddy, would you mind quoting for this job? Here's the details. So I open the attachment and boom, Honda motorcycles. And it's this whole outline of everything they need. And it's a global ad campaign for the 20th anniversary Fireblade, the NC700S and NC700X, their new like crossover bikes, uh, a cross tourer, which is another one of their motorbikes. It's basically, and, and then a scooter. I think it was four or five bikes wow. that, we, that they, they needed shooting. And it was going to be a two-week campaign based out of Rome. And yeah, it was unbelievable. I'd ridden Honda, I had a Honda Fireblade when I was 18. Like, I, I, it was incredible. So I start putting together the quote and I'm like adding bits in, what they need, usage, time, travel, the rest of it. And I hit equals on the calculator. And I was like, no, that can't be right. Bear in mind, I think the biggest job at that point that I'd done was 
I don't know, maybe like two thousand pounds or something, which was huge right. to me at the time. Right. Of course. Huge. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, this can't be right. It was it was over six figures. Well, it was six figures. And so I called Chase and I'm like, mate, I've just got this opportunity. I just want to run this by you because it doesn't seem right. And I read him off what I've got. And he's like, yeah, he said that I would have charged more than you, but I'm also 10 years down the line from you. So yeah, that, that seems right. And I'm like, okay, you're high, like whatever. So I call my other <laughs> photography friends and they're like, no, that that's right. <laughs> so yeah. So then I send the quote. I'm like, they're going to say, what, what are you on? Like, this is no way going to fly. I send the email and no word of a lie, less than 12 hours later, wow. Adam replies to me. Yep. We're going for it come down to London. We need pre-production meetings. And that was it. That was my first global ad campaign at 20, 22, 21, 22. I don't remember how old I was. I was straight out of university. And so that, that was it. That kind of gave me a taste of like the, the, the big time, you know, and we went out to Rome and we did this shoot. And it was absolutely incredible. And I worked for 16 days straight. I think it ended up being, we had two weekends built in with contingency. So the aim was Monday to Friday shoot, Saturday, Sunday off, enjoy going around Rome. Like we've got bikes there. We can take those out. It'd be great fun. We blew through all four of our contingency days because of weather and right. just things taking longer than we thought. And then we're at dinner the very last uh, night when we had wrapped. And I'm sat next to the, the global marketing manager, Teresa from Honda. And our phone rings. And she's like, oh, I'll go take this. And she goes off. And so we're chat, 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 you know, drinking wine, having a good time. She comes back and sits next to me and she's like, face is like thunder. I was like, oh God, what do we do? Because we had actually been papped. So the paparazzi had got a picture of one of the bikes previously. And I was like, oh God, don't say another, another bike's been leaked. Right. And she's like, how much longer could you afford to stay out here? And I just looked at her and I went, how much can you afford? <laughs> <laughs> and, and she was like, we've got a bike that is going to get overnighted from Japan right now that they want to basically add another segment to one of the videos to showcase this other bike they didn't think was going to be ready. And she's like, but we, we need to talk. So I'm like, you know, a bottle of wine deep at this point. I was like, all right, cool. This seems like a perfect time to negotiate. So <laughs> off we go. And anyway, it ended up working out that I had to send my assistant home. We sent home uh, most of the creative team, the production team. And the only people left were me, our local fixer, uh, who doubled up as an assistant. And one of the creative directors, the cheaper of the two creative directors, uh, stayed on. Uh, and we shot for another three days, I think. And I remember at the end of that shoot, when we, when we wrapped the very last shot, we were on the side of this beautiful street somewhere near Rome. And I literally took the, the last video, turned my camera off, and then I just lay in the road, just like a starfish. Just like, oh, we're finished. We're done. We're done. I'm, not, I'm not staying. And we flew home the next day. And I swear to God, I slept. So I got home at, I think it was like five o'clock in the evening. I had some dinner, went to bed at like 6.30 and I didn't wake up till three o'clock the following afternoon. I basically hibernated. And that was a real uh, eye-opener into what it means to work. Like people think, oh, wow, you know, six-figure ad campaigns, you get flown to Rome, blah, blah, blah. It, it is beautiful and it is glamorous and don't get me wrong, it's a lot of fun. But holy moly, when you are like call time every morning was 4.30 a.m. for a 5 a.m. leave. And we didn't get to bed any earlier than like midnight or one o'clock yeah. because we were post-production, then pre-production meeting for the next day, then charging batteries, dumping cards, backing up, all of this stuff. So yeah, it was, it was brutal. But that was the best start I think I could possibly have got 
in the industry to to know a what it feels like to shoot a big campaign and b what it feels like to really work. Yeah, no, and and you you there's so much to unpack there. I mean, first of all, I think your your story is brilliant in the context that you you focused on turning a negative into a positive from the gate, going all the way back to your experience in London when you're you get down there, your shoot's canceled because it's raining, and you're like, ah, you know, what the fuck? What am I going to do now? And instead of just you know somberly getting back on the train and going back home, you fired out a tweet, shot in the dark, see what happens. And that led to this huge opportunity. It's amazing. And then uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, my experience in a production, much like yours, was a, a friend of mine's a DP. My, one of my best friends is a DP and we work together a lot. And um, this was back in 2014. I was graduating from law school. That's a, a whole other story for another day. And uh, the day I handed in my last exam, long story short, we jumped on a plane at 5 a.m., went to the Caribbean to do a 13-day video shoot, video production for a couple of uh, universities in the Caribbean. Sounds terrible. Yeah, I know. But that's the <laughs> thing, right? It's 16-hour days on, on shooting, and then you're getting back, and there's so much going through your mind. You're unpacking footage. You're looking at the footage from the day, and you're doing this whole thing. And then by the end of it, you're just completely wiped and exhausted, right? But uh, yeah. but yeah, there's an excitement level to it, and there's there's that dynamic that that you're doing something creative and unpacking that all from your brain. So super cool. So the rest is history, as they say, right? You do this amazing shoot for a Honda in Rome, terrible experience. <laughs> you, and you, you produce the shoot, everything goes well. And then after that, you're just, that work leads to other work, right? Yeah, exactly. And what, although having said that, what was a big eye opener for me is that I did that job and I then, because I'd never seen that much money in my bank account before, I took my foot off the gas. And so for the next year, I, I immediately, I think it was a day or two days after I got back, uh, I went and bought a Honda Fireblade. I, I went and bought one. Um, they, yeah, actually, Honda didn't give me a discount. I was, I was quite, <laughs> quite straight about that. But I guess they, they, they paid me enough. So I was like, all right, whatever. So I went and bought a Honda Fireblade. Uh, I took my girlfriend at the time on a, a really nice holiday to, I think I went to Mexico. Um, I put down a deposit on a house. Uh, so I basically did a lot with the, the money in sure. terms of establishing right. myself. Uh, and then I pretty much lived for the next 12 months, not worrying about trying to find work. And then I remember one day waking up and looking at my bills and I was like, the money's gone. I, I'm, I'm still able to pay for my house now and you know, the mortgage and whatever, but I don't have any more spending money. There's no more nice dinners. There's no more going away on little trips away, weekends away in Europe. I, I, need, I need more. And that was honestly the biggest life lesson I've ever had was don't, when you hit what you think is the peak that you've, you've reached, you know, when you've hit the, the biggest moment of your life, don't lo uh, loiter, linger, don't linger there for long. It's hard to say, linger there for long. Linger, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Don't linger there for long because absolutely you should enjoy it. And absolutely you should take a moment to celebrate, treat yourself, do something to reward yourself for reaching that goal. But then as soon as the next week, two weeks later, whatever, get back on it again and set that bar a little bit higher and go for that next goal. And for me, I was, I was actually then fighting, uh, sort of paddling up, uphill, up, upstream. I'm, I'm mixing all my metaphors, aren't I? It's all I was, good. I was paddling upstream then because all of a sudden, everybody else had been shooting work for the last 12 months. Everyone else had fresh new work to show. I didn't. I was the guy that shot that Honda campaign that was now 
two years old because they were now shooting the, the following year's campaigns. And so now I'm not as relevant as I thought I was. And so I'm like, shit, okay, well, time to get relevant again. So set the wheels in motion, started doing more test shoots, got my print portfolio updated, went down to London, literally trained down to London. And I would set up four or five meetings in a day. And I would just walk around London with this big old like A3 leather printed portfolio and just go show art directors. And some of them would, no joke, some of them would flick through it like this. Like they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't even be looking for those of you that are listening. They, they would just have it on the desk in front of them. And they would be sort of like one eye on their phone, one eye out the door, like just pulling pages. Like it was a, a cheap magazine, you know? Right. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was definitely heartbreaking. Uh, a few times I would go down to London and hear nothing, absolutely nothing. And the, not only was it an investment of money, but it was an investment of time in doing that. And also emotion. You know, you, you go into a meeting with high hopes and you think that everything's going to be great. And then all of a sudden you come out and you don't hear from them. And it's like, well, they said they like my work. Like, why, why haven't they got in touch? And then you call them again. Hey, I'm back in London. It'd be great to meet up. Oh, sorry, really busy. You know, they don't have time. And it's true that I, I know a lot of art directors now and, and they're slammed. And for every, every one of me, there's 20 others, 30 others, 50 others trying to do the same thing. So it's a very saturated market. And, and so you have to be quite clever with how you connect with people because they just see so many portfolios and they take so many meetings. And that for me, honestly, was one of the reasons why it's not an industry that I'm so heavily involved with anymore. Because I felt as though I wanted to do something. I, I would look at my friends who had regular jobs and I would envy that the fact that at the end of the month, they knew how much money they were going to make. And I was like... I, I would love that security because for me, it was, it was feast or famine. You would make a, a decent wedge of money and then you had to make that last because you didn't know when the next paycheck was coming right. in. So yeah, that was, that was definitely a, a real learning experience. But as you said about turning negatives into positives, it made me work harder. And I've always been a self-starter. I've always been self-motivated. And if you are in this industry and you are working for yourself, then I mean, any, any self-made person or any, any person that's in business for himself will know that you've got, you can't rely on anyone else. Like if you don't work, you don't make money. Simple as that. And so you're the only one that you can hold accountable. It's not like you can go to an office and hide behind your, your monitor and get by with not doing as much work as you, as you should be. Like everything shows and, and your boss is the biggest asshole ever because it's you. <laughs> <laughs> well said. No, and, that, and that's a brilliant life lesson as well in terms of, and, and listen, professionals in all cycles of life, older professionals that have been in their career for 30, 40 years sometimes get really complacent and forget that you need to keep feeding that the marketing pipeline or whatever, whatever hashtag term you want to use. You got to keep feeding the machine because it really takes about nine to 12 months for things to cycle, to, to, to matriculate. I don't know. We're both, we're both stretching our, uh, our idioms here a lot, <laughs> right. uh, but it's but, early. It's yeah. early. This is only my second cup of tea. That's my excuse. <laughs> but for it to turn into something legitimate, to turn into a business transaction, you really got it to your point. You really got to nurture that relationship. You need to make those eight points of contact or whatever the, uh, the average amount of contacts is that you need right. for it to matriculate into something like that. So really interesting. So, all right, now, now let's just touch on, as I said, we won't do the Michael Blakely thing too, too much, but it is an important part of who you are now and what you've evolved into. Absolutely. So you yeah, start yeah. shooting campaigns again, and that eventually leads you to come to the West Coast 
because you yourself were already thinking about moving to California, right? Yeah, exactly. So the, my career carried on and, and it was only a, a, probably a, I don't know, six month period where I was like, Oh God, you know, I'm, I'm behind now, but I, I got everything back up and running and jobs started coming in again and things were good. You know, I was, I was doing well. Uh, and then ever since I was 15 years old and I watched the show, the OC, I've always wanted to move to California. It just, the, the place just absolutely, uh, resonated with me and everything that I saw in that show, I wanted. So I was like, from 15 years old, I'm going to move there. I'm going to move there. And I was going to go to college there and then couldn't do that because I was teaching martial arts. And so I, I had over a hundred students when I was 19. So oh. I didn't have a, any ability to, to move far away. So I actually went to university 10 minute drive from my house. Um, and then, yeah, basically just got to the point where I was 26 at the time. Yeah. 26, I think. And I had my house. I bought my house from the, from the Honda job and I was really looking for what was coming next. It was sort of like an early midlife crisis. And so I've been doing the photography for five or six years at that point, professionally, you know, really like hitting it hard. I was like, where do I go? Where, where does my career go? Does it just keep going on this trajectory or can I shake it up and make something cool happen? And I would watch videos from Hoonigan and the, the, Ken Block. I don't know if you're familiar with those. Yeah, I saw those, those images in your portfolio. So you eventually got to shoot with them on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. So so I, I always wanted to to do that type of thing where they shut down the streets of LA to film a video of him drifting this modified right. old Ford Mustang right, around. Right. And it was just incredible. I'm like, that would never happen in England. Certainly not in Kenilworth, where I grew up, the sleepy <laughs> little town in the middle of nowhere. And so it was just one of those things where it, a little tiny thought became a recurring thought that became something that just took over my whole consciousness. And so I just thought, well, I've got to do it. I've got to make that that decision. And it was a hard decision to make. I was living with my girlfriend at the time and I was just, I had to do it. And she didn't want to go to America. So I was like, look, I, I can't, I couldn't get to being 60 years old and regret not having done it. I would much rather do it and at least, although it would mean ending a relationship, at least it wouldn't mean losing that person from my life, you know? So that was a huge consideration. Uh, I've got a very small family raised by my mum and her mum and dad, my grandparents, as close as close can be to them. I speak, still do. I speak to my mum every day. You know, I, see, I saw my grandparents every, every couple of days, every three days. So we were all real tight. So the thought of moving totally to a new country was a huge, huge departure from, from my normal life and, and something that absolutely scared the shit out of me. But I knew that if I didn't do it, I would have those regrets and there's FaceTime and there's things called airplanes. And it means that if I did need to get back to, to England, obviously now it's a bit different, but if I needed to get back, then I could jump on a plane and sure. within 12 hours, 13 hours of leaving my front door in America, I'd be walking in my front door in England. So yeah, I, I just decided that I was going to do it. And that, that was it. And so I came over here for three months just after I did a big job. I shot a behind the scenes uh, documentary for the Guitar Hero game, the, the latest Guitar Hero game. And it was like a six month project that I was working on. And so I took the money that I made from that and stashed it aside. And then it meant that I could comfortably come live in LA for three months without having to find work because obviously you come over as a, as a uh, tourist, you're not allowed to work. So I came over and I started hitting up all of the supercar dealerships and just just building my portfolio. Basically, I used it as an opportunity to shoot the things that I wouldn't be able to shoot in the UK. 
And so I started to do, that's where I started, got the connection with Lamborghini and I was doing it all for free, which was great because it meant that everybody said yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, Hey, this, this is the work that I, I've shot in the past. I would like to shoot your stuff for free. And they're like, wait, what? It's kind of like, I get, actually, no, that, that sounds really big headed. I'll say it anyway, but I don't think that I'm Ronaldo, but it's kind of like Ronaldo going to like a <laughs> Sunday league football team and being like, Hey guys, uh, so I'm in the area. Do you mind if I just play up front for your team for a few months? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's been a while so, since so, I kicked the ball around. So I'm just going to go. Right, exactly, I'm Portuguese. Yeah. So you're, you're pulling at the right heartstrings. Don't worry about it. Perfect, Keep rolling with perfect. it. <laughs> so, so that, that's kind of what it was, right? You've got this, this commercial yeah. advertising photographer with a, a, a pretty substantial portfolio saying, yeah. Hey, I'll shoot your stuff for free. So it worked in my favor and I, and I was real busy for those three months. And at the end of it, I was uh, trying to actually get a, a sponsorship through a different company and that fell through. So then I'm like, well, shit, I've just invested all this time in it and I'm, my heart is set on moving to California. So I go back out for SEMA in uh, November. And while I'm out there, I spend a bit more time in LA. And I just happened to go on this supercar drive one Sunday. And it was through a mutual friend of mine. And while I was there, well, mutual friend of mine and Michael's. And while I was there, I was taking pictures of cars. And there's this like pretty ugly looking Lamborghini uh, Hurricane. It's like yellow with black and red stripes. And it's got Tricolor uh, calipers. And just it, it looked like it drove through a wrap shop and just some stuff stuck to it. <laughs> so I'm like, God. And then this guy gets out of it and he's got this purple streak in his hair and wacky shirt and everything. I was like, wow, this guy is a, he's, he's something. So I'm taking pictures and, and he saunters on over to me at one point and starts chatting and he's asking me who I am, what I do, where, where the pictures are going to go. And I, I obviously had no idea who he was at the time. And so we, I was just a bit, not dismissive, but I was just like, I'm, I'm trying to take sure, pictures. Sure, you're working. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, let, me, yeah. let me take some pictures first and then we'll chat. So after I'd taken pictures, we sat down and we were talking at lunch and I explained what I was doing and everything. And he's like, oh, well, why don't you come to my office and maybe maybe I can connect you with someone. You know, he, he's... Michael is the the world's best uh, connector and and networker. He's he's like a little little kind of business cupid, and I've seen him do it with with tons of people. And it's just who he is. You know, at his core, he is such a genuinely kind hearted person, and he wants to help. And so I went to his office, and it was two days before I was due to leave to go back to the UK. And at this point, I hadn't got any other leads, and I was like, well, if this doesn't work, I'm out of money. I'm going to have to put this on hold. So I go to his office and uh, show him my portfolio. He's like, wow, you know, I didn't realize that your stuff was such high quality because he just saw me taking pictures of these cars. Again, it always seems like when I look my most hacky is when I get the biggest breaks. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I've only just thought that. So, so yeah, because I, I, I went to that supercar drive on my friend's dirt bike that I borrowed. So there's all these Lambos, Ferraris. Like, uh, I don't know if McLaren was really a thing back then. Maybe there's some McLarens. And, uh, and then there, yeah, there's me, this kid, like on a, I think I was wearing a, like a bomber jacket and some ripped jeans. And I was on awesome. this KTM dirt bike that didn't have a key to start it. Cause it was like a full <laughs> off-road bike. And yeah. And I just like rock up at this supercar meet, just hoofing after these guys on PCH, like <laughs> ripping wheelies. So yeah, very, very, very peculiar that people like me so much when I seem to be the, the biggest douchebag. But anyway, I, uh, <laughs> I went to his office and he was looking through and, and he was like, well, look, I represent celebrities and I only represent one other photographer, a guy called Stephen Wader, who he's basically shot every Playboy centerfold since 1900 when it started or whatever. Yeah. And uh, so he's like, I only represent one photographer and I only represent clients that are making over a million bucks a year. So I could represent you, but you would have to get up your game. And I was like, 
fucking challenge accepted, mate. Like that, that sounds great. I'll, I'll, I'll work harder. You know, I'll, if, if you can, if you're there to support me on your end, I will bring my A game to, to my end and do everything that I can. So that was it. We had a handshake and he was my manager. And so I left that meeting, walked back to the, the house that I was literally sleeping on. It wasn't even a couch. It was like a futon. No, not a futon, like a chaise long uh, in, the, in my buddy's room that he was subletting. Mm-hmm. And like my feet would hang over the edge and I didn't have like a proper duvet. And I was like sleeping on a pile of clothes because he didn't have any spare pillows. And I literally walked back and I was like, I'm moving to America. And that's awesome. it. I'm, I'm wow. moving to America. So I started the visa application process, got approved. And uh, yeah, then moved over here. I think the, our meeting was in the November. Yeah, because well, I was there for SEMA. And I moved here on, I think it was May, May the 1st or May the 5th or something, sometime around there. Wow. So, yeah, that was it. And, and then, how long ago? What year? 2016, 2015? For 2016. Yeah, four years ago. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, it was, it was kind of just all the planets aligning really. And, uh, I think you make your own luck and I think also you have to just let things come to you as well. And everything worked out. I did everything that I could and things, yeah, things turned out great. So I moved over here and then started to rebuild a career basically, because over here I was a nobody. No, the ad agencies knew me. So guess what? I was back to the same old shit, schlepping my book around agencies apart from this time it wasn't so convenient because they're all like 20 miles apart down the 405 <laughs> and I have to drive everywhere. Uh, and it takes so, forever down the 405 to get anywhere. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So in fact, I had a motorcycle to begin with. So I would strap this portfolio to the back of my bike because it's, I mean, it's a big, big old thing, you know, it's, a, it's an A3 sized portfolio. So it's large format and uh, yeah, I'd strap it to the back of my bike and rip around and yeah, go see, go see art directors. And so that's where I ended up working for Dell, working for Microsoft. Uh, who else have I worked for over here? Um, yeah, a few few other big companies. And, awesome. and then I don't know if you want me to get into the YouTube thing yet or if you've got more lines. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep uh, rolling. I mean, you're, you're, you're killing it. I, I love the story that you're, what I'm seeing anyways from my end is your constant curiosity for openness to opportunity, I guess, is, is the best way maybe to, to encompass all of it. And you just seem to put yourself in really good situations. And, and, uh, you're, it, to me, I, I get the impression that you're a genuinely cool guy and, and maybe that's what's coming off and you're not pretentious. I mean, you, you come off, you're, you're super talented. One, one very amateur, but one photographer to another. I mean, my, I'll give you a quick side story. When my wife and I got, got married, uh, we got married in Portugal and we had a destination wedding. So we had to pick a Portuguese photographer. And when we were choosing our photographer, we were online and, you know, we maybe looked at about 10 together before she was like, this is now your job because I'm obsessing Mm -hmm. about, you know, overblown whites and two dark blacks (laughs) with no detail. And, you know, like I'm popping it into Lightroom and getting, (laughs) getting, you know, uh, uh, the, the figures from the histogram and, and I'm I'm that psychotic. Oh, when you it, are when it, a nerd. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Something people most people don't know about me is that I get very like engrossed in all of these side hustles, hobbies, whatever you want to call them, that eventually turn into these things. And it's very similar to to what you were saying. Very interesting. But your your stuff is absolutely stunning, super well exposed. I mean, uh very artistic, but certainly far from overdone. I really love, love, love your photography. Now, Thank you. I appreciate that. Ken Block. So 
you were a fan of his. Ken Block, for those who are listening or watching, we're, we're recording this on Zoom as well. So Ken Block, for those who are watching, is one of the most, if not the most, viral car drifters of all time, has had stuff on Amazon Prime before that was very, very viral on the internet, on YouTube, on all those things. I'm a car guy as well, but by the way, so we, we've got a lot, of, a lot of things in common. We're simpatico on a lot of things. Um, so Ken Block, you're a huge fan of his. You're a gearhead to begin with. And did you meet him and work with him before you came to California or after? Um, so weirdly before, uh, so they did a Jim Carner event at Santa Pod Raceway in the UK, which is not far from where I, I live. And I went down there. I was like, yeah, this seems like a great opportunity. So I go down, take my camera, got a media pass. I, that was my favorite thing being back in the UK was getting into all of these events and shows with a media pass. Even yeah. if I wasn't going to take pictures, I would go get a media pass anyway, because it would get me in for free. <laughs> and awesome. so, yeah, I, would, I, I went down there and uh, I shot some stuff just of, of, the, of him driving around. I wasn't even there for him or to work with him, but I just shot some pictures and then fired them over to him and I actually got to chat with him in the pit a little bit, but he was, he was a busy man. And he also stuffed the car. It was, it was pretty much the first time the Hoonicorn had been seen. I think it was the first time it'd been to the UK. It was the first time it had really been seen in public. And so they bring it out, there's flames and fire and everything's cool. And it had been a bit wet the day, obviously, because it's England. It had been a bit wet and he comes like ripping out onto the Jim Carner course. And it's like a long straight away. And then it's into this big like e-brake uh, induced left-hand drift. And he comes out and there's a thing of water barrels at the end to catch you if you mess up. And he comes out and pulls the e-brake and doesn't turn. And he just plows straight into these water barrels and he totaled the front of the car. Oh. So that, that, was, that was day one. So luckily, <laughs> I wasn't there for day one. I got there day two. So I saw a little bit of testing of, of that car towards the end of the day. So he, was, he wasn't in the best of moods ah. uh, at the time. And uh, I think he, he, he's pulled in a lot of directions as Ken. So uh, sure. yeah, he he wasn't the most chatty, but, but I had a brief conversation with him and I was like, well, look, I'll, I'll send you some pictures and spoke to Ron, who was his sort of sidekick photographer. And we chatted on, on Instagram for a little bit. And I sent him the pictures and they loved him. And so again, that's what I'm saying about like going out and shooting work, even if it's not paid for, like going out and shooting tests, because then now I've got Ken Block's car in my portfolio. And even though it wasn't directly shot for them, it's still something that another brand can then immediately imprint themselves onto that. So if I go to Monster or Red Bull or Rockstar or any of those brands and they want me to shoot Tanner Faust's rallycross car, then they can see that picture of Ken Block's car and go, oh, cool. Yeah, this guy can do it. Right. Rather than looking at a picture of a Lamborghini or a picture of whatever and having to sort of imagine what it might look like if I shot there. So I do a lot of that. I do a lot of like spec shooting right. where right. I, will, I will shoot for the job that I want to have. Uh, and so anyway, that was in the UK. And then after that, we, I, came, I moved over to California and I met a guy called Mike Tornabene, who is, uh, your listeners may have heard of a guy called Don Mazzetti, who has a, it's called Bro Science is the channel. Uh, it's basically a, a, char a character that Mike plays. He's kind of this uh, New Jersey, like gym rat guy. It's, it's very, very uh, not safe for work. I'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so I met Mike and Mike's a big into his cars as well. And he had a McLaren at the time. And so we started, uh, shoot, well, he'd already, uh, started the channel. I joined late, uh, but it was called an RPM, G N A R P M. And it was basically a, a car kind of like top gear, but better. Mm. And, and I love top gear, but me too. Our show fan. really was yep. incredible, but just the, the cost of it, 
Mike was bankrolling it all. Somehow we couldn't get sponsors on board. I don't know how that thing never took off. But anyway, it didn't. But during that, we started to partner with Hoonigan. And so they gave us a Can-Am Maverick that Zach, one of the guys on the show, managed to flip over three times. So they weren't very pleased about that. Uh, <laughs> we went down to the, the shop and I had a V8 Touareg at the time and we strapped it to a container and I tried to do an all-wheel burnout with it. Um, they, yeah, just, we, we kind of, we, we moved in the same circles. So I, I now I'm, I'm in with the, the Hoonigan guys. I don't have a lot to do with them, but certainly if, if I, I saw them in an event or whatever, then you I'd, could, I'd yeah, be able to go you, up and chat. Have something to talk uh, about. Zach now, who was the co-host of NRPM is now their like head of online content or something. He, he went on to work for them. So that they it's a very small industry The people move in small circles and uh, another great example is at that same Jim Carner event in the UK, I met a drift driver called Ryan Turk. And he's a really cool guy. He had a TV, sh- uh, a YouTube show called Turked, where he would go out and do fun stuff with his drift car uh, when he lived back east. And then I started to work for a company over here a couple of years ago now, last year. Yeah, last year called Race Service. It was sort of like an automotive ad agency. And Ryan is their tame drift driver, I guess you would call it. His shop is there. His gym is there. And so uh, again, me and Ryan crossed paths and I was like, Hey, I don't know if you remember, we met at Jim Carney. He's like, Oh, holy shit. Yeah. So there's just all these very cool synergistic things that, that come about by, like you were saying, putting yourself out there and getting yourself in the, in the right position to, to meet new people and have yourself seen. And I think that's, that's so important. And that's obviously you're doing it. You've started a podcast for greater visibility and, and hopefully that's, that's helped you with your endeavors as well. Yeah, it has. And I mean, I I think that's one of the interesting crossovers. I'm really fortunate that, you know, aside from being an attorney and being in the sort of traditional, more corporate realms, I've been exposed to people in production. I have, you know, one of my best friends is a DP. Uh, We've produced work together. We're actually working on on boosting a lot of production work right now um, ourselves. So we have a couple of scripts we're working on. We're shooting something on spec for his reel. And doing that stuff. I mean, you mentioned for those who are listening that don't know what on spec means, it means like you said, you shoot something essentially for free creatively for the job that you would want. So for example, you know, if you wanted to work with Lamborghini, maybe you'll go out and just shoot some Lamborghinis for free to show the level of work that you can produce. And now you have on spec work that you can present to Lamborghini, but also to other people to say like, look, this is what I can do. Exactly. Exactly that. Yeah. And it leads to so many opportunities being open to that. It's almost like constantly side hustling as an intern, so to speak, right? And yeah. I think people in, in unfortunately, uh, entrepreneurs sometimes and, and people in, in the corporate world, especially, get a little complacent and forget that you need to keep adding value. I mean, I know that's an overused term right now, but but that's exactly what on spec is. And, and maybe we should start hashtagging on spec more so than adding value because it's getting a little dry, but. Yeah, no, absolutely. And like you said, it's so important in, in every aspect of life as well. You know, I think we could, we could be a much better civilization if more of us went and did things that were, weren't, in, weren't initially self-serving, but exactly. you could yeah. see the benefit of later on down the line. So maybe that's you go and volunteer for somewhere and while initially it doesn't seem like it's something that benefits you, the happiness that it brings to you six months later when that baby goat that you raised is happy and living its best <laughs> life or that homeless person that you fit yeah, dinner to gets exactly. their first apartment. Exactly. And yeah. 
you know, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And especially with the current climate, like we, we just need to be decent fucking human beings, don't we? Seriously. Absolutely. Very well said. And you know, the, the thing is also, it, it just leads to a, a lot of your stories and a lot of the stories of the, of the other individuals that have been on the show. One of the key things that I've learned is when you put yourself in these unique positions, it leads to unique opportunities. I don't want to be in a room with 50 other lawyers. I want to be where no lawyers are and hanging out with other people so that you get broader experiences. And then you're the guy, like you said, right? You're the photographer that's on the spot or you're the videographer or the content producer that's on the spot. And they go, yeah, why would we hire anybody else but Adam? He's always around anyways. You know, let's just have him shoot it. And that leads to these opportunities that catapult you. So then, all right, let's let's shift to now your your YouTube fame success. You're crushing it. Uh, You're crushing it on two channels, which I, I think is insanely impressive. So did producer Michael have a channel before you started working with him on his channel or no? No. So Michael had a big Instagram following. And so Michael's Instagram at the time, I think was maybe 200,000 and yeah, probably somewhere around 200,000. So obviously people like to see the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Michael posts a lot of pictures of cars that he's owned right. or watches or just luxury stuff. Right. And people love that little bit where they can just switch off their brain and just see how the other half live and and fantasize about that. And so given that I had done the YouTube stuff with Mike Tornabeni, the NPM channel, and I'd always been making my own videos anyway, that was inspired by Chase 10 years prior. He was he would shoot videos. This was back when it was on like DV cameras, mini DV cameras. This was before even digital stuff really came about. But he would do these little behind the scenes videos uh, like Chase Jarvis Raw, I think they were called, was how he branded it. He, if, if you don't know who Chase Jarvis is, guys, go and, go and Google Chase Jarvis. Uh, now he's, he's less of a photographer, active photographer, and more of a, just a creative guru. Uh, he's just launched a book. Uh, so there you go, Chase. There's a little free plug for you, mate, uh, called Creative Calling. And he is such a big inspiration to me because he's done so much with his life. And actually, his career path, uh, mine has sort of mimicked that, not, not really on purpose, but he got into active uh, to action sports in the beginning and then moved on to the commercial stuff and now has branched out into other elements. And I'm kind of doing the same, but now with YouTube. But anyway, I'd always, always loved shooting behind the scenes videos. And again, adding content, right? Showing people what goes right. into it because an ad, um, an art director, yeah, it's great if they can see what work you've produced. But at the end of the day, and, and I tell this to people all the time that ask me what the key is to getting these jobs pretty high on the list, probably as high on the list as taking good pictures is don't be an asshole because these art directors have to spend a week or two weeks or three weeks in my case on set with you working God awful hours in sometimes God awful places, most of the time not, but you know, in, in subprime conditions where tempers can run high, people can get pissed off with you, with each other. And if you're the asshole that no one wants to be around, then it doesn't matter how good your pictures are. They're not going to invite you back. And so I've, I've lent heavily into that and, and I've made some amazing friendships with people that were employers. And, and I think that has been a key to a lot of my success in repeat business from, from clients is just by being the guy that by the end of the, the week, they're friends with, you know, by the end of the shoot, we're all mates and we're chatting to each other and I keep in touch with people. But anyway, I digress. So the YouTube thing came about when I had this all this experience. I, I was able to create these videos. I saw that Mark, Michael had this audience. 
I was like, we should just start shooting some videos for YouTube and let's just see what happens. He's like, well, who's going to want to watch me? And I was like, well, 200,000 people for starters. You know, you got, you got your Instagram audience. So let's start there. Let's see how many of those we can pull across. So we launched it in Monterey for Car Week. And we went out and we did, we did a drive with some supercars. And then we did a walk around the Rolls-Royce house, the Rolls-Royce house in, in Monterey, where they had some luggage that was like $250,000 or something for suitcases for, for your car. But even like, you know how the Rolls-Royce center caps always stay upright? Mm-hmm. Well, even on the wheels on the roller bag, they had the little wow. emblem and it stayed upright like <laughs> as you wheel it. Which I thought was pretty cool. Not, it's not worth 250 grand Rolls Royce, but it's, it's cool nonetheless. And so we, we did those couple of videos and we launched them. And I think the first video, I was like, okay, if we get a thousand views, I'll be happy. And so we put the video up. Uh, I always put the videos up at uh, midnight on a, a chill, like Monday night, Tuesday morning, midnight PST, because that gets Europe at 8 a.m., 8 or 9 a.m. Then it hits the East Coast of America, then the West Coast of America. And so basically you get, Tuesday, but as far as YouTube are concerned, and here's, here's a little tip for you guys, if you're making YouTube videos, this helps with the algorithm. Um, don't pay one of those guys on Instagram that will teach you how to blow up your YouTube channel. I'll just tell you for free. And um, so basically, or, but if you want to go and buy some swords merch, just absolutely. Yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> little plug there. I love it. Um, basically what, uh, what, uh, what happens is you get all of that kind of traffic on one day. So YouTube sees, oh, okay, this video went up on Tuesday and it did pretty well. So then it starts to promote it to other people. Uh, and so the first video went up and I think we did something like seven or 8,000 views in the first day. I was like, whoa, okay, this is way bigger than I anticipated. And so we put up another video and that one did better and better and better. And the subscribers kept coming in. And I mean, we hit half a million subscribers really fast. Wow. I think we hit half a million subs in the first, if not 12 months, it was in the first 18 months. Like it, wow. it grew quick. Um, we had a few videos go viral, four and a half million dollar diamond bracelet did really well. And, and that was it. And then we just tweaked the content, fine tuned it, saw what the audience liked. Now we've settled on this sort of area where we do mansion tours. Yeah, we do right. watches, watch reviews, that kind of thing. And then luxury lifestyles. So that could be jewelry, that could be supercars. That that type, but really, watches and houses are the things that people love the most on the channel. So that that's kind of where we've we've moved towards based on our audience's reaction to it. And now I think we're at nine, basically nine hundred thousand subscribers. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully a million million subscribers within the next few months would be nice. That'd be that'd be a cool goal. Well, you guys are killing it. I mean, I've I've I'm a fan. That's how I stumbled on to. To following you on social media and your your doggo Diesel, which we'll talk about in a little bit as well, because uh, I'm a I'm a dog lover as well. He He's hanging around. Yeah, mine are uh, mine are out of the room. They've barked on episodes before, and then I've had people say, "Whose dog was barking in the background?" Uh, those were mine. Uh, I have two. Uh, what do you have? Two Belgian Malinois mixes. Oh, very cool. Yeah, is well, Diesel yeah, is Diesel a Mal or is he? He's a so shepherd he's, mix. He's not. So I thought, based on what they, they told me at the rescue, that he was a Malinois husky mix because he looks like a Malinois, but mm-hmm. he's then got white paws. Right. And so they were thinking Malinois husky. I got one of those DNA tests done, and it turns out that he is 50% German Shepherd, Okay. which surprised me because he's not, he's not as big as He doesn't have the slope back either. Nope. Yeah. He he's doesn't. got the Malinois straight sort of stature. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which I'm, I'm thankful for because I had a German Shepherd Doberman before, uh, Benson, who was awesome. He was my, he was my favorite <laughs> dog ever. And, um, he, he was, he 
he had the German Shepherd sloped rear right. end, and right. in the end, his his back legs gave yeah, out on him. But I mean, he got to fourteen, so he did really well. He, yeah. was, he was awesome, dog, and he was also one hundred and twenty five pounds. So he was wow. a big, and he a made it to pup. fourteen. That's great. Yeah, you so took he, good care he of him. really, and, and he, he had cancer twice, so oh. he did he did really well. Um, anyway, so he's fifty percent German Shepherd. He is twelve and a half percent White Swiss Shepherd which is basically just a long-haired, white German Shepherd-looking hmm. dog. And the weirdest thing, but actually where I think he gets his white socks from, he's 12.5% boxer. Oh, wow. Interesting. I don't see any boxer. Yeah. yeah. Me no, neither. I mean, Me I'd, I'd call Malinois with it. I would say he's a Malinois as well, just from looking at his pictures. He looks so similar to ours. Our two, now my wife will argue to the death if she's listening to this. The big one, we have a big one and we have it. They look like match luggage. We look like we have a, a carry on and a, uh, and, and a check check. Yeah. So the, uh, the big one, who's the younger one, he's the puppy. He's probably about 80, 85 pounds. He's massive. And, um, I think he's Malinois Rhodesian Ridgeback mix. Okay. Uh, if you look at Rhodesian Ridgeback pictures, he's got the wrinkly forehead, the ears that he has, they both have floppy ears. Uh, so we don't have the traditional up in the air, unfortunately, but, uh, right. but we still love them. And, uh, and the little one, uh, Jemmy, we don't know what she's mixed with, but she's a female. So she's, she's like a micro Malinois and she's got, right. you know, they both have Malinois tendencies, which can be, right. can be a handful, but, uh, but yeah, so you post a lot of pictures, a lot of videos with, with your dog on the beach in, uh, in Corona Del Mar area, more or less. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Newport Beach, Corona Del Mar. Yeah. That's awesome. So cool. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a, it's a great spot. Yeah. I mean, I lived in LA for the first four years and I moved, I was in Marina Del Rey first, then I moved to Venice beach, like right on the, right on the boardwalk. And then I moved from there down to Redondo beach, kind of Hermosa area, which was lovely. And I've always wanted, like I said, I love the OC. I love the show, the OC. So <laughs> even though I actually found out that it was filmed, all of the beach scenes were filmed in Hermosa beach. Uh, I always wanted to move to the Orange County and here I am. There you go. And I living the it. dream, it's, baby. Yeah, living the dream. Just just being able to walk to the beach is amazing. And like on Sunday, I rented that jet ski and ended up riding jet skis with a pot of killer, uh, killer whales. I wish pot of dolphins, like over a hundred dolphins. Yeah. Just I saw your video on, on, uh, on Instagram. Incredible. Yeah. I, I did a full episode. Check it out on YouTube. There's more on, on there, but yeah, just, uh, I, I wait, honestly, I wake up sometimes and I'm like, is this my life? Is this what I'm doing? And yeah, this YouTube thing has been a very unexpected thing. And yeah, the producer Michael channel taking off like it has. And it basically got to the point where the producer Michael channel was taking up more of my time than my photography work. And so I, I looked at the finances and I was like, all right, well, you know, if I, if I double down now on the producer Michael stuff, then I'm going to be doing better than doing my photography. And more consistently, I was like, "All right, well, let's let's do it. Why not? Let's let's give it a whirl." So, we I, I just I made the leap. I went full time, and I still do take on photography jobs, but I'm just very very selective, and it's it's great because it means that I don't have to take those jobs that I don't really want to do. You know, like right. I remember in the beginning, I was shooting for a, a dealership out here, and it was just consistent money. They were retainer clients, so it was good because I was I was making money consistently, so I knew I could pay my rent. And, uh, I was, yeah, photographing this fucking Mercedes, like a new Mercedes SUV. And it had a Christmas bow on the top of it. Cause it was for their Christmas campaign. <laughs> and I just sat there on this roof of this parking lot above the dealership, taking pictures of it. And I was like, fuck this. 
Like, what, what am I doing? Like, why am I up here doing this? I've been in, you know, Rome shooting stuff for Honda. I've been to all kinds of beautiful places shooting right. cars and nice things. And here I am after this big old expensive move to America where I've left all my family and friends behind and everything that I love. And here I am shooting a Christmas bow on the top of a fucking Mercedes. <laughs> and and that, that honestly was the point where I was like, you have to put a value on your time. Right. And if the value on your time, if the, if the job you are doing does not pay you more than the value of your time, then don't do it. Yep. And it's a difficult jump in the beginning. And, and people always, whenever I say this, people always question it and rightly so, because there is this sort of limbo period where you stop taking the shit low paid jobs and keep chasing the expensive, better paid jobs, right? We're all trying to level up here. And the, it seems like I've been talking a lot about money in this thing, but at the end of the day, we're doing this as a job. Sure. Like that's, yeah. that's why we're doing this. So I don't want to like sugarcoat it and bullshit with all the fluff. Oh yeah, being a photographer is great. Like at the end of the day, we're doing it to make money. As much sure. as it's our passion, we're here to earn a, a living. And so as a business, I had to look at it and go, right, I could shoot these cars on the roof for barely any money really compared to what I could be getting for a commercial job. And this is going to take up two days of my time, right? Shoot one day, edit the next day. What could I be charging if I was, say, on a commercial shoot for these two days? Or if I spent these two days, instead of shooting these pictures, shooting something that will get me that commercial job that I'm looking for. And so I, obviously the finances have to make sense for you to be able to do that. But I saved up a little bit. And then I was like, I'm done. And so I, I told that client that, that I, I wasn't going to be available anymore. And it wasn't that I had any more work. I just wanted to free up that time. And also that, that mental bandwidth. Like I'm a huge proponent in that we have a finite amount of mental bandwidth, mental and emotional. And you can allocate that, let's say it's 100% of your, your capacity. You can allocate percentages to different things, but you cannot exceed 100%. Yep. And so you have to choose whether or not you waste bandwidth on certain things. And, and I think this about people that you, you surround yourself with as well, because I think it's really important to surround yourself with good, positive people and to cut out, like hard chop out people that bring you down. And again, that's controversial. And some people say, oh, well, I don't get a choice because it's a family member or whatever. No, you do have a choice. You absolutely do have a choice. And like I said, that there'll be that little bit in the middle where it'll be tough. But trust me, the, the benefits that you will reap from not having that negative energy or not having that job that is sucking the life out of you and occupying that bandwidth, taking that bandwidth from you. Once you see the light at the end of that tunnel and you start to then be able to reallocate that bandwidth to other more uh, profitable or beneficial or rewarding or whatever that, that is to you, you'll, you'll be like, wow, wh why didn't I do this soon? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, it's surrounding yourself with people that, that bolster you, bolster your creativity, help you to be a better version of yourself, just be a better human being completely changes your life. You, you just have no more capacity for bullshit. <laughs> That's just yep. pretty much the way that it goes. And you just, yep. like you said, hard chop, hard stop. We don't allow for this in our space, in our headspace at all. And all of a sudden, things change around. Yep. Yeah. Uh, 100%. I, I always say that I have a, a zero tolerance for bullshit. And I mean, you said earlier about you feel as though I'm, I'm 
I'm me. I'm, I'm not trying to be anything that I'm not. You're absolutely right. I am unapologetically me because one of the things that I live by is I would rather you love me for who I am. Sorry, I'd rather you hate me for who I am than love me for who I'm not. Yep. And that that's something that I feel very passionately about. And I'm not going to get on with everybody. No one is going to get on with everybody. But I will always be 100% real and truthful and honest and myself because if you like that, we're going to build a really good friendship. And I want you to be the same way. Because if you forge friendships and relationships based on truth and, and who you really are, then that, that's the way forward. And, and again, being a good human being, that's, it's never been more, uh, it's never occupied more of my brain than in, since, I, since I moved out here, honestly, um, seeing a difference in the, the way that the, just the community is out here. There's, there's a lot of, unfortunately, um, and like I said, it's been brought to light recently, that there's a lot of different factions. There's a lot of disconnect between people out here, it seems. And maybe that's an LA thing because everybody's trying to be the next big thing. Everybody's trying to like trample on everyone else to get to where they want to be. But yeah, it definitely was a culture shock. And, and it's, it's really, I've, I've never felt more passionate about helping others and doing the right thing and just a rising tide floats all the boats, you know? And that's yeah. really why I started, this is a nice segue into it, why I started my YouTube channel was because I felt like I had so many experiences that I was fortunate enough, lucky enough to be able to, to have. And I wanted to share that with people because I knew that when I was 21, 22, 23, sat there at home in the UK in a small town, dreaming about doing bigger things, I didn't have anybody that was on their way up. I only had people to look at who were already there. They'd already made it. And when you see someone that's already made it, it's quite difficult to see the steps you need to take to replicate that. Um, and that's kind of why, I, like I said, I wanted to start my YouTube channel because I felt as though it was an opportunity to show people my journey and inspire people along the way to make it theirs. And while some people look at it and go, oh, well, it's just you showing off and riding helicopters in the Grand Canyon and blah, blah, blah. It's like, I'm showing what I'm doing. And the reason I'm doing this is because I got myself here. I'm the reason this is happening. And if you want it to happen to you, the only person getting in your way is you. We all have choices we can make in this life and we all have the ability to change our circumstance. And I do not for one second forget the fact that I was so lucky with my upbringing and my opportunities. And But my mom, she was the, the biggest enabler for me because she was the type of parent where if I came back from school and said, mom, I want to be an astronaut, she would say, okay, cool. Where is the astronaut school and how do we get you there? It wasn't, she wasn't the type of parent that would go, oh, well, you know, it's quite dangerous, right? And only, only the most intelligent people can be astronauts. You have to work really hard. And there was none of that. It was like, oh, you want it? Okay, cool. Let, let's do it. Like, it, that's, awesome. that's it. There's yeah. nothing more to say. And that's something that I've carried through in my life. And as, as you've noticed is you just got to get yourself out there and you've got to put yourself in these positions and growth doesn't come from an area of comfort. You will never grow. And I know that's such a, a cliche saying, but it's fucking true. That's why, because you will not succeed if you just sit on your ass and do the same thing day in and day out. You got to push yourself. You got to go have another job interview, go and try out for that job. That's two pay grades higher than you want. Go, yep volunteer at that sloth sanctuary in Costa Rica because Christ, you might end up living there and that might be your your new future. Cut out that that negative person in your life. Like make make a, a, a conscious effort to be constantly trying to level yourself up 
And you've got to balance that with being content with who you are as well. Because I think there is the risk of getting to the point where you, if you feel like you constantly haven't made it, you will never find that, that, that happiness in the moment that you're in. And so it is a balancing act. And, and it's, it sounds easy when, you, when I'm just here waxing lyrical about it, but you do have to get that balance correct. Because like I said, I did the big job for Honda and then I, I rested on my laurels. And then, I, and then I realized, oh, well, this isn't how to do it. So it's like, you have to be constantly trying to level up. But had I have gotten that job for Honda, done everything that I'd done, and then continued to work, I would have been in such a better position after that while still having all of those nice things, the bike, the holiday, the house, it, it, I, would have, I would have just been 12 months ahead of myself. And so I just think that that's so important for people. And certainly the feedback that I've got on my YouTube channel and on Instagram, the DMs that I get, a lot of people say to me, I, it's so motivational to see what you're doing and to, to see your genuine passion for stuff. And, and I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Like this guy messaged me from Malaysia or somewhere, somewhere over out east. And he said that he's basically been a hermit. He's like, I don't really go out. I don't really have many friends. It's not something that I've ever felt comfortable being around people. He said, but after watching your videos for the last few weeks, I've actually booked to go on a camp, like this, this group camping trip where someone runs it and, they, and you go and meet new people. He's like, I, I've booked it. Awesome. And I was just, I, honestly, it almost brought me to tears. I was awesome. like, that, the fact that someone could watch my silly ass videos <laughs> and, have, and it have that much of an influence on their life to where they admittedly have just sat there playing computer games and not being sociable. And it's made them go outdoors and go and explore what's on their doorstep and then meet new people in that brand new environment. It's, it's that whole thing of the rising tide floats all boats and yeah. it's going to make them meet more like-minded people. And it, it's just, it's fantastic. And, and that's what we need more of. We need more of people just striving to be better and helping each other out along the way. Yeah, it's awesome. And again, could not agree with you more. I mean, my best friend, uh, Mike Leary, who's been on the show, he's co-hosted a bunch of episodes with me. And he's the DP I was referring to. We went to the Caribbean together. We've shot a lot of things together and now we're working on some new projects. That is his motto, a rising tide raises all ships. So hats off to you for, uh, for nailing that one. You hit that one out <laughs> of the park. But, but I couldn't agree with you more in the context as well of being both in living comfortably in that duality, right? Striving to be better, but at the same time, somehow being comfortable with who you are in the moment, in the present moment. Exactly. It's, Amazing. I mean, I, I'm over here bowing down to you as <laughs> very guru no, This is what it's all about, mate. Yeah. This is because some things, they seem so obvious when, they, when the words come out of someone else's mouth. Right. Exactly. And you go, wait, I knew that though. I, it was up here, but it just, I wasn't able to action it. And yeah. so sometimes just hearing somebody else say it is, is all you need. And so that, that's why I'm doing it. I'm, I'm lucky that I've got this platform and I'm able to come and do amazing podcasts like this and have conversations with great like-minded people. And yeah, I, I always strive to be the dumbest person in the room. And I, I do a pretty Same. good job. Of yeah. it, I've got to Same. say, um, but, but the, the idea not in this behind... room, not in this virtual room right now. Uh, but yeah, cool. Uh, so I think, yeah, no, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say that the idea behind that for, for people that might be like, wait, what be the dumbest person in the room? What does that mean? Be the dumbest person in the room means you want to surround yourself with people that are better than you. And when I say better, I don't mean like that you feel substandard to them, but I mean people that are 
more advanced in their career, people that have done something, they've been traveling to somewhere you've wanted to travel, people who have got a skill, they're better golfers than you are. Like th- that's, that's the type of people that you want to be surrounding yourself with. And that's not to say that your childhood friend who unfortunately hasn't done the most with their life should be left by the wayside. Not at all. It's your duty to be that person's uh, inspiration. Right. It's your duty as a friend to bring that person up with you. And again, there's that phrase, a rising tide floats all the boats. Yep. Like, yep. If everybody helps everybody else, we are going to lift the baseline. And that is done by helping those below you. And, and I'm, I don't use below in any type of condescending or patronizing way, but people either less fortunate, you, you get what I'm saying. You, you understand what I'm saying, just so no one takes me out of context there. And you get pulled up yourself by people that are above you. And so there are these levels in life. And I feel like we're just constantly like computer game. You got to build your XP and you build that bar and it goes all the way up and then it goes dink and you hit that next level and then whoop, your XP bar goes all the yeah, way back down. Exactly. And then you start building up XP on that next level. And that's the way that I look at life. And, and yeah, I, I feel like since moving here to Corona Del Mar and with the way that all the YouTube stuff has gone, I think I just reset my XP level and now I'm at the bottom again and I'm hungry. And awesome. that's why I'm, I'm hustling as much as I am to, to hit that next level. Awesome. And speaking of sort of resetting the XP bar to another level that you've attained, you started your own apparel brand your own everyday adventure apparel brand called Swords, SWRDZ.com. Tell us how yep. you got into that, how that idea came to fruition and how that's going right now. Yeah. So I, I appreciate the, the plug. So I've always, I've always looked at, oh, I've always been entrepreneurial and I've always loved design. And I mean, from again, from being a kid, I got those iron on transfers and I would like print a picture and buy like a cheap blank white t-shirt and iron it on and then make my own clothing. And I've always enjoyed doing that. And so with the progression of my YouTube stuff and starting to build an audience, I started to look at what the next three, five, 10 years is going to look like. And do I see myself shooting videos for the next 10 years? I mean, I don't see why not. I'm enjoying myself. I'm having a great time. But what I want to do is make sure that I'm future-proofing myself, I guess, And so the way that I look at it and with the Swords brand is that it's a great way for me to uh, have another creative outlet. And clothing is always something that I've I've been, I say passionate about. I'm not a fashionista. I'm not really into high fashion or anything, but I I enjoy, I enjoy trainers. I enjoy watches. Um, I'm I'm normally in a black t-shirt. That's, that's kind of my, my school uniform now. But uh, yeah, the Swords brand came about because I just thought, well, I've got this audience. So I I have a, a, customer base already, which is great. And I have products in my mind that I know that I want. And if I want them, then probably somebody else out there does too. So let's just suck it and see, see how it goes. So I designed a few things. So I've got a, right now the line is, is comprised of a t-shirt, a hoodie, a crew neck, some joggers and two hats. So that's the, the first collection that we launched. I just figured it was a nice across the board. If you live in a colder area, you've got your hoodies and your crew necks. If you go to the gym or like to lounge around the house, you've got your sweatpants and then t-shirts. Who doesn't love a nice t-shirt? So that's kind of where I started off. And the plan with the brand is to continue to build it. And, and although I, I promote it using my YouTube channel, it, it is its own brand. And although Swords, again, it's, it's my last name is Swords, spelled S-W-O-R-D-S. The, the Swords brand, I want to stand alone. So in the same way that, that you can buy a Ralph Lauren shirt, 
you may not even know who Ralph Lauren is. You may have no interest in that bloke whatsoever, but you can buy one of the shirts. That's kind of where the, the Swords brand is for me is that it doesn't matter if you don't know me, like you'll, hopefully you'll like the stuff because it's, it's cool. And so the, the purpose behind building this brand was, like I said, creative outlet, but also something that will be able to uh, run by itself, be sort of somewhat automated and, and moving forward in five or 10 years time. Let's say I do want to pump the brakes on the content creation and I want to go travel and enjoy the, the fruits of my, uh, my labors, then I'll have a business that is able to sustain right. that lifestyle and, and, and just, yeah, be, be something that I can keep my hands in on. And uh, the next thing I've got coming is some luggage. So we're doing, doing luggage. So now will the awesome... logo stay steady on the luggage wheels for 250 oh, K? Yes. For 250 grand, <laughs> you, I, I will pull that around for you in the airport. If you spend, I'll say it right now. If you spend 250 grand on my back, I will personally wheel it around the airport for you. Um, I think we'll but, have to uh, yeah, get so, Michael Blakely to do one of those. Producer Michael, buy a bag for 250K and you'll wheel it around for him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'd already do enough for Michael. I'm not doing <laughs> shit. <laughs> he can wheel his own bag. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so I'm doing this this really cool neon yellow, like bright, bright neon yellow. Because that color that, uh, you can kind of see up on the back of the shirt yep. here. The neon mm-hmm. yellow is the, the go-to color for the brand. And, and so... Obviously, I do a lot of traveling and I was like, every time I go to an airport, I see black bag, black bag, black bag, people pulling the wrong bag off the carousel because it looks like theirs. And I was like, if you had a neon yellow bag, there's no missing that. That's yours. And so I have one of those in the works. I'm doing some like uh, bigger luggage as well, um, which now apparently has to have a fixed logo in the wheel. Uh, I'm going to do, I've got a luggage strap as well. So if you don't want to go the whole shebang, you can just have a neon yellow luggage strap. Uh, board shorts. Uh, what else am I doing? Just ton, tons of stuff that I personally would use. So nice. the strap line for the, the brand is find your everyday adventure. And so awesome. that's the whole, the whole point is you don't have to live. I'm very lucky to live where I live, right? I know that not everybody can walk five minutes and be on a beautiful beach like I can, but everybody can walk five minutes and find something cool, whether that's a park, whether that's a cool, like gritty industrial area. Yeah whatever that might be, there's, there are, there is architecture to be found. There is something of interest within a five minute walk of your house. And if there isn't, then walk 10 minutes, put in that extra legwork, you know, like that, that's kind of where I'm getting at with this brand. And I really want people to wear this clothing and feel empowered to go out and make the best of their situation, whatever that is, whether you're on a desert Island and you want to go snorkeling with beautiful fish or whether you're in downtown LA living in like a real gritty, grungy district and you want to go out and like explore and look at some of the cool urban artwork that's out there, whatever that is, I want you to wear this clothing and feel empowered to go and do that. So that's the idea behind the brand and it's, it's in its infancy right now. It's going great. The support's been awesome. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just something that's a, an ongoing project that is running alongside the, the YouTube channel. Brilliant. Yeah. And I love the branding, by the way, the double X's as, as your main brand logo. And then the way you have swords, it's got a lot of parallelism there. Uh, you can see your artistic nature coming through in that. And, and it definitely, I think, resonates with the target audience that you're going for in general. Yeah, I, I hope so. The, the actual creation of the logo and everything was, was pretty cool. I, I was trying to come up, I, I knew that I wanted to call it swords, um, just, just because it's it's a, my last, I'm very lucky to have a, a good last name. And, uh, people always say, they're like, wow, is that really your last name? But like, yeah, it really is. And 
What's funny is because I'm a fourth degree black belt, I'm officially master swords. So I sound like <laughs> some, some baddie off of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, and so I knew I wanted to call it swords and, and I was playing around with the logo and I couldn't make the O fit in there. It didn't work. So I was like, all right, what about if I get rid of the, the O and then add in the Z? And so that's, that's how you get that kind of bookended S and the Z. Mm-hmm. And then I was trying to come up with a, a decent logo, just as in like a standalone logo. So the two X's. And this is on the website if you, if you want to read more about it. But basically me and my mom, uh, ever since I was, I was young on birthday cards and things, my mom always signed two kisses, two X's on my cards. And I actually have it tattooed right here. Oh, awesome. Thumb. Yep. Um, and uh, so I got, I got the, the two X's on my thumb and then I've got the army stripes for my granddad. And then Carnation was my grandmother's favorite flower. So that's kind of like a little family hand over there. And um, basically, yeah, I, I, I love the two X's, but that's very personal to me. And so I didn't want to use two X's side by side because that's what me and my mum use. So I was looking for the, the meaning of two X's in history and where it's appeared in design and all that kind of stuff. And I actually found a Roman, uh, not Roman, a Viking rune called Ingus, I-N-G-U-Z. And uh, it's, it's the, the X's are, are this way. They're stacked on top of each mm-hmm. other with the, the bottom tips touching the top of the X below. And when I started to read up on it, it basically symbolizes, uh, I mean, it symbolizes fertility, but not in, a, not in a feminine way. Fertility as in like new beginnings, starting, uh, like blazing a new trail, um, strength, uh, all, all of these, these things that as I was reading them, they're all resonating well with me. And I was like, wow, this is, this is what I've done. You know, I started new, started fresh. I've been doing new things, blazing my own trail, doing my own stuff. And so I was like, wow, this really works. And so I took the, the two X's side by side, the two kisses, and I took the rune, which is stacked. And I basically merged the two and clocked it a little way and put the X's into each other. And that was the inspiration behind the logo and the, the, the swords font is kind of like a Viking style font. And when I, I did the twos, the, the S and the Z, everything just worked out. And so I worked with a, a designer and within a day, we'd bang this one out. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is perfect. So I, I like that as well. I like the fact that, that in searching for the meaning of something, I organically found that what, I, what was already given to me, the hand I'd already been dealt, actually had some meaning to it that resonated with me. And, and so yeah, that was that was really cool because it, it just adds that extra layer to the brand that it's not just a cool logo. You know, it's, yeah. it has some meaning to it and it stands for what the brand is all about and what I'm all about as a person. Brilliant. Now, what are you a fourth degree black belt in? What style? Uh, it's called Tang Sudo. It's a Korean martial art, Korean karate. It's, it's very similar to Taekwondo or Shotokan. So yeah, it's a, well, it's actually, it's an Okinawan style. It's not a Korean style. It's an Okinawan style, but um, it's, uh, yeah, it, it ended up in Korea. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's a heavily, uh, kicking influence style. So there's, there's lots of kicks, uh, hand, hand techniques as well. And my instructor was a big proponent of training in different styles. And so we have some influences in there from boxing and judo. And so mine, I would say my training isn't traditional, like absolutely rigid, traditional tang sudo. It's sort of more free flowing. And, and I love that. And I've trained in uh, Muay Thai. I've trained in um, Brazil, Brazil, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, uh, boxing, kickboxing. Yeah, I've done uh, Kempo, all kinds of different styles over the years. I've been doing it since I was four. So wow. I've been, been and are you still while. practicing and training while you're in California or are you now kind of removed from 
Yeah, no, I have been. There's a there was actually a Tang Sudo school not far from where I used to live up in Redondo Beach. And so I, I was training there for a while. Now that I've moved down to Orange County, uh, I need to find a new school to train at regularly. But obviously with all the coronavirus thing, everything's closed because you don't want some dude sweating in your mouth uh, <laughs> while you're training. So um, yeah, I, I'm I'm actually looking, I'm going to get more heavily into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Okay, that's, cool. That's my next thing. I, I love Tang Sudo and I'll always train it. Um, but I, I feel like I need Again, I need to level up. I need that next challenge. And so I want to go back to being a white belt, get my ass kicked and and starting something new. And I think if I could have my time again and just do one style for the rest of my life, I think jujitsu would be it. It seems it seems like a, a incredibly, incredibly good, uh useful real world martial arts. Very to have. practical, yeah. Um combine that with a, a bit of basic striking and it makes you one tough mother. Yeah. No, I uh, I started Shotokan Karate myself with uh, with a teacher who's also not very much a, traditional in the sense that when we do the kata training and stuff like that, we definitely work through very traditional. You know, you're doing the kata uh, as it was traditionally set up, but uh, yeah. but we we pepper in some uh, some kung fu, some tai chi, some other stuff as well. So really cool. Uh, uh, I'm nowhere near nice. black how, belt yet, but yeah, still getting my. How ass long have you been training? Uh, we started, I let's see, well, we, so it, it's kind of an interesting and this one, this part won't air, but, uh, it, it's kind of an interesting story because we, we've been working together on so many different things, uh, philosophy, meditation, uh, integral philosophy, Shotokan, Tai Chi, all these other things that we just, we work w- with each other on. Uh, he teaches me, I, I should say, and, uh, I've been super fortunate. So I may orange belt in his system. He, he was, he had his own school for two, three decades here in Philly for a very long time. And, um, so I'm very fortunate to to be exposed to him and to get one-on-one training with him now. Uh, so I think I started Shotokan with him November, maybe of 2019. So So, yeah, very, very new. Yeah. 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 Uh, awesome. but we're, we're three katas deep. I've got, uh, he's, he's having me, you know, tick off how many times I've done each kata and, and, uh, I've done about 1500 reps of, of the first mm. two. And now we're on to the third. So, you know, working our way nice. through. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Martial arts is fantastic. And I, I think it's something, I mean, if you do choose to air this, then, then I think it's something that's hugely valuable, um, to, to human beings in general, just because it builds that that kind of confidence within yourself. In fact, the, the, the first, I don't know, you might be the same in Shotokan. It, it is in Kenpo. The, the first forms that you learn, the first kata are called the pionan or pinan. Uh, and that translates to peaceful confidence. And the idea being that it teaches you the basic movements, the basic blocks, the basic strikes in order to defend yourself against multiple attackers. Now, if, if you're a martial arts nerd like me, then you might have different opinions on uh, whether kata are practical or if they're more right. just for, for linking moves together. And I, I tend to err towards the, the latter there. I don't right. think that learning Pion and Shodan is going to mean that you can fight off 20 dudes coming at you. Um, but I do think it's going to do very good things for your coordination and balance. Um, but anyway, that, that Pion and that peaceful confidence is something that you then carry through the rest of your training. And, and I think that it's so important for people to have that because I think a lot of, a lot of the stress and anger and built up tension that people have comes from the fact that they're insecure or comes from the, the fact that maybe they're not insecure. Maybe they're just scared, you know, and, and being able to defend themselves to, to know, to, to have that 
confidence in yourself that if shit hit the fan, you would be able to do a somewhat decent job of protecting yourself and your loved ones. I think that that's a, that's a very important skill to have. And that then carries on into the rest of your life where you don't feel the need to cause trouble. You don't feel the need to be the aggressor. You diffuse situations because it's like I fight five times a week, you know, for fun. I don't, I don't want to fight now. And, and that in martial arts is definitely something that has influenced it. Well, not influenced, it has shaped my life and my mentality on multiple things that, that go far beyond kicking and punching someone. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think if, if you've never tried martial arts, once all this coronavirus stuff goes away, go down and do your first karate class or jujitsu class or boxing, whatever it is, go and kick and punch something or strangle something. And I promise you, you'll come out feeling better. Do it for, commit to doing it for three months. And at the end of it, DM me and tell me how much it's changed your life. Because I promise you, I promise you, nobody, if someone comes to me after three months and says, didn't make me feel better, didn't, I didn't enjoy it, it didn't make me a better person, I will pay for your three months. I'll put it on record right now because I guarantee you, you will feel great for it. Well, I'm, I'm here to say that my experience has been the same. I, as we were just talking about, I've maybe been doing it for six or, or so months, roughly. And just with coronavirus, A, it's helped me with my focus. It's made me more disciplined. It's just brought things really into focus. And the funny thing to your point is you start out with this kind of thing, oh, I'm going to learn how to fight and, and handle myself and this and that. And then the more you do it, it's really just about like it becomes it becomes a form of, of moving meditation, so to speak. Yeah. And it really does impact your life. It changes things so much for the better. I mean, sometimes when when I'm getting anxious or a little stir crazy because you know, I'm a bit of an extrovert. And, and so being locked inside for months on right. end without human contact is a little tough. So w- when you're getting anxious, sometimes I'll just go down to my basement or whatever room or hallway I'm in, bang out a couple reps of a kata. And yeah, you're right. I mean, I- I'm with you. I- I'm not fighting Sorry, off. I just, got, I just got flashbacks to, to uh, stepbrothers. Hey, you want to go do karate in the garage? <laughs> I can just imagine you with nunchucks. Like, just exactly. going at it in your basement. Exactly. Your wife comes down like, yep. what, Tony? Yep. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. She knows Why to stay. Sword, if I'm in the, Exactly. If I'm in the basement, she's like, he's down there with a wooden sword or a bow staff or something's going on. I'm not going down there. But but to your to your point, I'm with you. I think I think it's 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 very useful as a calisthenic training. It's very useful for balance and just for mental focus and kind of meditation. But yeah, you're not fighting off 20 dudes with a, with, with a kata, you know, stand right, right there and hit me like this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And the moving meditation thing is brought to an abrupt end when you get punched in the nose. As yeah. Well. And real fast. Do you know what? I, I think, I think that's one of my favorite things about martial arts. And this sounds very sadomasochistic is I love being punched. Like I love getting a good hard slot where you're like, Oh geez, that was, yeah. why did Shocking. you got that? Like, yeah. Yeah, it's it's instant feedback. You know that there's no no one's writing up a report on how you were sparring, going here. These are the things you should change. When you get cracked in the face or you know kicked in the ribs, it's like, oh, that's what I need to change. I need to keep my guard down, or I need to keep my guard up, or yeah, don't lean in like that. Yep. Uh, yeah, I, me and Michael always always talk about it because, especially, I mean, not so much now while I'm not training, but back when I was training, I would come in with like new bruises and stuff, and he'd be like, "What is that?" I'm like, "Oh, that was from grappling, or that was." from this, that was from that. And he's like, you're a madman. You're a madman. But then he wears his like million dollar watch to go to the car show uh, in Monterey. And he comes up to me, he literally calls me that morning. He's like, 
Adam, I'm thinking about wearing the uh, the astronomia to to the the quail. Um, are you will you be okay to look after me? And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. Now, now I'm your bodyguard <laughs> as well. That, that's what this is. Like, so, so I'm I'm crazy for doing this when when you're okay, but when you need me, now all of a sudden it's cool. That I'm that's okay. awesome. Fantastic. Oh man. Well, Adam, thank you so much for your time. This has been incredible. Tell us about where everyone can find all of your content. You have so many places. I know swords.com first and foremost for your apparel brand, swrdz.com or Zed, if, if we have UK listeners. Right. <laughs> uh, but where else can they can they track you down and check out some of your content? Yeah. So if you want to see my photography, so what I do for a real job, rather than making silly YouTube videos, uh, then go to adamswords.com, A-D-A-M-S-W-O-R-D-S, like the weapon. Um, that's where you find my photography. If you want to see my YouTube stuff, then it's youtube.com forward slash adamswords. My Instagram is instagram.com forward slash adamswords. Twitter, guess what? Twitter.com forward slash adamswords. And oh, I also, uh, so I'm a bit of a nerd. I love computer games. And so I've, I've started streaming and I, I do it only when, so when I play computer games for fun, I'll just turn on the camera and stream. So it's not, I'm not a professional streamer by any stretch, but I just get on, play computer games and you can come hang out while I'm playing and talk to me on the chat and stuff. So that's uh, twitch.tv forward slash S-W-R-D-Z-X-X, Swords XX. Um, yeah, and that's it. And then, oh, I also have, God, I've got so many. I also have a Discord channel as well. If, if you guys know what Discord is. Uh, it's basically kind of like a chat room. It's it's sort of like, I guess it's like MSN Messenger meets like some kind of a chat room where we've got loads of different sub chat rooms. So you can go and talk about watches, cars, travel, adventure, computer games, whatever you want to talk about. I'm just building this community of like-minded individuals uh, who are there to help each other out. And every time I drop by and, and look in the Discord channel, there's people talking about different things. I went in there last time and there was this thread where one guy was teaching the other guy uh, like Python, the script. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm out of here. This is, this is way above my pay grade. But again, I like to be the dumbest person in the room. So I'm kind of cultivating cool. this community of, of people that are, are trying to build each other up and, and just, yeah, be good people. So Discord, uh, I, I don't know what that is. I think it's bit.ly. I think I did a bit.ly for that. Bit.ly forward slash swords, S-W-R-D-Z or Z. Discord. We'll, uh, we'll get you there. Oh, and that's it. Super cool, man. <laughs> Mouthful. Wow. Thank you for everything. I mean, uh, your art, art and photography is absolutely stunning. I really think people should check it out. Visually very entertaining. And a lot of people could use some positive content right now. But thank you so much for the episode. You were fantastic. Awesome, awesome, awesome content. Thank you, Tony. I really appreciate you having me on. And it was great chatting to you. And yeah, we'll definitely have to keep in touch. And if you're ever over here, then come over and we'll have a beer. You got it. Bye.